Hello, and welcome back to the top 10 things you can do to prevent child sexual abuse. I am talking in this episode, tip number seven, about knowing the signs of sexual abuse. Again, my name is Megan, and thank you so much for taking the time for this important cause. So a lot of what this course is about is really the myths that surround sexual abuse and trying to combat those and give accurate information. So when we're thinking about what parents assume will be the signs of sexual abuse, those are centered around a few things. The first one is that parents assume that if their child was ever sexually abused, that the child would come to them and tell them. So that we've already addressed in tip number four about why kids don't tell, but most of the time when parents are assuming that sex offenders are all listed on the registry and there are these creepy people that grab kids and stranger danger is the best approach, when that's your mindset, then it's only natural that you would assume that if somebody tried to grab your child and molest them, that they would come running to you and tell. And most likely they would. But as you have learned up to this point is that so much is about the nature of that relationship. Offenders really prey on kids, manipulating them to make sure that they won't tell. And so it's really a false assumption that your child would come and talk to you, especially if you've never really talked to your child about what sexual abuse is. So I think after taking this course and uh, using some of the approaches I've taught you, such as having children that are aware of sexual abuse, they understand the nature of it and who does it, they know that they're the boss of their body, and they know that secrets aren't safe, then I do think that they are much more likely to approach you and tell. Another thing that parents assume is that the child will fear the offender. And so that we also know, due to the nature of the relationship, is rarely the case. And very often children even seek out this relationship. And finally, what parents assume is that there will be some kind of physical evidence that they would be able to see sexual abuse. And so that is just a huge myth that, um, well, bottom line that you can do any kind of virginity check or have any kind of doctor examination show you that a child has been penetrated or not. That is just an absolute myth. And so I will be talking a little bit more about that today. So there are some signs of sexual abuse that um, might be indicators, but I think it's really important to caution you that a lot of the signs of sexual abuse could indicate a number of things, and most likely a child experiencing one of those secrecy traumas that I've talked about. Um, so for example, a child that might have extreme anger outbursts, true. If this was not their normal character and this has recently started, yes, of course, this could indicate that this child has been sexually abused. However, it could also indicate that the child is witnessing domestic violence. So you have to be careful and, and not jump to conclusions over any of these signs. Really, the only way to truly know if a child has been sexually abused is if they come to you and tell you. And that is why so much of all of these episodes are geared around having these conversations with your children that will make them feel more comfortable approaching you around questions that they might have about sex and know that they can come to you and, 
and tell you if something like this has ever happened, because really that is the only way to know that a child has been sexually abused is that they are disclosing that. And unfortunately, the way that uh, we respond to sexual abuse is very often when we hear that from a child going straight to a place of, are you sure? <laughs> and that doubt um, that, gosh, maybe they got confused. Maybe they're just upset with that person and, and going um, to this place of, of disbelief. So we know that um, that's really the only way to know for sure that a child has been sexually abused is, is they're giving a clear a clear disclosure. Um, you could also maybe have some kind of physical evidence. Um, usually offenders are extremely careful. Uh, I've talked about how they are very often doing this to teach children about their sexuality, or at least that's the false narrative they tell themselves that, that they're somehow doing something good for this child rather than traumatizing the child. Um, but they, they don't have they don't leave physical injury very often because they are really cautious and they don't want to hurt the child. These are not violent episodes. So uh, usually they're, they're not injuring the child. And then as far as physical evidence, such as DNA and that kind of thing, um, yes, there is a slight chance that that could happen, but they are usually very cautious. And then when we're talking about older kids and when we're seeing, you know, children... 12, 13, 14, 15 years old, and maybe their sexual abuse is happening in a peer-to-peer -peer situation, and they did not consent to the sexual contact. Very often, even if there is some kind of DNA evidence, the person in that offender role is just claiming that it was consensual, and so um, the fact that there might be some kind of DNA is not necessarily good enough proof for some of those cases, unfortunately. So, um, but when we're talking about the signs, um, there are some physical signs. Um, of course, if there was injury, um, that would be a potential indicator, especially along with a disclosure. Um, but usually physical signs actually are, are more signs like incontinence, urinary tract infections, kidney infections, um, if a child has been potty trained, then they're, they're reverting back to um, having accidents, um, maybe start wetting the bed, for example. Um, so all of these things, along with the psychosomatic symptoms, such as bad stomach aches or headaches or any kind of just uh, physical pain that they are complaining about. These could all potentially be indicators. I think to one of my clients that um, for, actually I think it was years, she was going into her mom's room complaining of these intense leg pains that they thought were growing pains, but the mom did take her to all these doctors because they were so bad and the child was coming into her room so often at night. And really what was happening is her older brother was sexually abusing her and that's what she would do is she would go into bed with mom and, and say that her leg was hurting rather than having this scary telling on her brother and being in a position that maybe she would never see him again or he would be removed from the home and break her mom's heart and all of this thing that actually eventually did end up happening when she did make her disclosure but um, you know I've already gone over a lot of the reasons kids don't tell and so she just was escaping the situation and, and talking about this leg pain so um, I think that 
to you have to just realize that a lot of these physical symptoms um, potentially could be other things. And so it's not like if your child has urinary tract infections quite frequently, you want to jump to this conclusion that they're being sexually abused. It could be a number of other things, like they're not cleaning themselves properly. Um, so there, there's always potential for other explanations when you don't have a disclosure with it. That's why I'm trying to help you talk to your kids so that they'll be a lot more likely to additionally give you a disclosure. So I also want to just bring up the, um, the medical evidence and actually um, having some kind of an examination, um, a sexual assault nurse evaluation. Those are SANE exams that that our advocacy center and, and most advocacy centers um, have providers for children to have that um, medical uh, exam. But those very, very rarely, only in about maybe 3% of cases, is there even any opportunity for any kind of medical evidence. It is extremely rare. And you really have to understand the physiolo physiology of of, of at least a female's anatomy, and that myth that there is a sealed hymen in place is just absolutely not true. Any doctor that says that they can perform a virginity check is actually not telling you the truth, and it is not a real thing. Um, a lot of people have a hard time understanding this because it is embedded in our culture, and especially in other cultures, um, other than, than my own um, Western <clears throat> European culture. But um, this is just, it is a, a myth out there that, um, that there is some kind of seal on the hymen, and if a person is penetrated, that seal is broken. The actuality of it is the hymen is very, very thick, fleshy tissue that from infancy onward starts getting thinner and thinner and very rarely is entirely sealed. In fact, if it is closed entirely, especially as a child approaches, you know, early childhood years, five, six, seven years old starts hormonal changes and that lining is being um, becoming more and more thin. Um, if that does not happen and the lining would remain thick, that's actually a medical condition that they would need surgery because the problem would be is that someday when they get their period, the blood would not come out. And so it's just absolutely silly when you think about it. Just use the logic. You are able to be a virgin and still have your period, so there must be some kind of opening for the blood to flow out. So I don't know what kind of seal could possibly be in place. Um, that, that would break at the point of losing virginity. So this is actually really important information that I like to give my victims and their families because very often there's this fear that now they've lost their virginity because of their sexual assault. And it is absolutely not true if, if virginity is a not a physical condition and there is no way to look at a person and determine one way or another if they are a virgin, then it's obviously something else. And I would say it's all about choice and you lose your virginity once you make that decision. Yes, I want to have sex with this person. That is when virginity is lost, not when somebody beats you up with their penis. So, um... That is information about physical signs. Um, there are also potential emotional signs that can happen. More than anything, you're looking for a change in behavior. And so a child is normally one way, very social, for example, and extroverted, and now all of a sudden they're withdrawn and very introverted. 
or maybe they have a lot of anxiety that didn't exist before, especially if that anxiety is around certain people. Maybe they start having symptoms of depression or, like I mentioned before, having anger outbursts. So these kind of emotional changes could be an indicator, but it could also be an indicator that something else is happening. So it's all about having a good relationship with your child. But taking that time and connecting with them and saying, gosh, I'm just noticing something going on with you. Do you have any secrets? Is there something bothering you? And just really taking that time to check in with them. There's also behavioral signs, potentially. Um, this might be changes in behavior like rebellious behaviors um, that are either like attention seeking or just really maladaptive coping skills. What I always think of it with this is how I got into this line of work. I actually first started working with sexual abuse victims when I was working with um, girls in a residential treatment program that had been committed. And so they were actually serving a sentence for the juvenile justice system here in the state of Colorado. And uh, it was because they had had offenses such as running away from home, substance abuse, theft, those kind of things definitely maladaptive coping skills. And I never sought working with this population. Um, I'm very grateful and blessed that I stumbled into it. But when I started working with these um, essentially juvenile delinquent kids, is at least what they were referred to back then, um, I, I really did not expect to find that nearly every single one that I worked with was actually a victim of sexual abuse. And so um, just a little comment, because I don't think I've addressed this, and I know that the language around this really is um, important to a lot of people being called survivors. I absolutely believe that victims of sexual abuse can become survivors of sexual abuse, and those resiliency uh, all of the, the resiliency factors that go into having this traumatic experience and then bouncing back and recovering from it, that absolutely makes them survivors. But I'm cognizant that there is a victim role that people play that they are stuck in when they are still suffering from their symptoms. And those girls that were in residential treatment certainly were still in that place of being a victim until very often many of them were really successful in completing the program and that was part of their healing was being called survivors of sexual abuse at that point. It was something that they did the work and they kind of earned that label because they weren't suffering so much with their victimization still. So, And then the final group of signs of sexual abuse are, of course, sexual signs. Um, so that would be like language or knowledge that is just really not age congruent, that your four-year-old makes a comment to you. Um, like I can, I can think of a um, random one that we had at our advocacy center, but um, somebody blew up one of those um, pink balloons, uh, um, like the for making a, a balloon animal. And so <laughs> this very long 
um, pink balloon, and, and she just is like, oh, that looks like Uncle Larry's penis, which would be a very random, weird thing to say, and uh, certainly that would count as a disclosure, but um, she was clearly indicating that she had some sexual knowledge there. Um, but yeah, any kind of comments that they make um, that might indicate that that they have information about oral sex and, and um, just anything that you wouldn't expect them to know could definitely be a sign um, and a great opportunity to have a really important conversation. Um, definitely young children, when they have been abused, they discover that that touch feels good. And so very often they have excessive masturbation, or maybe that even evolves into some problematic sexualized behaviors. Um, and especially if it doesn't decrease when redirected, that can be a potential problem and an indicator. But that's not to say that some children are just highly sexually stimulated and they might just um, really have discovered that that touch feels good and, and they like it. Um, but those kids would probably be a lot more responsive to, to redirection. So, um, and then poor sexual boundaries with people, because especially if these are really young children, they've learned that they get attention from having this kind of, um, you know, sexual contact with somebody. Maybe they're seeking out sitting on people's laps or lots of kissing and that kind of stuff. And maybe that's because they've had a lot of reward for that kind of attention in the past. And they're just seeking out what they think will work. Um, so, I, and this is just an opportunity, again, to refer back to those myths around victim blaming, because we, we hear this in in jury trials and stuff, sometimes they do try to blame a six-year-old because she was overly sexualized and she was coming on to the offender and, you know, just tempting him. Again, go back to that continuum of decency and where would a person fall if they respond to a six-year-old that actually goes to the, the extent of, of placing her hand on his penis? What would a decent man do in that situation? What would a really respectful and kind person do? Such as immediately standing up and saying, honey, I don't know, that's not okay. And we need to go talk to your mom about this and telling the parent and maybe advising the parent to get into some kind of counseling or something because that behavior is really not appropriate and could be dangerous. That would be something that a truly compassionate and a loving person would do. A person that is like, well, psh, I guess this is my opportunity is breaking the law. And so they would fall down at that lower end of that spectrum on that continuum of decency. And so just back to that for a moment, because um, I, I usually mention this. And if you haven't listened to tip number four, please go back, because I think this is a really important piece of victim blaming. But just I, I just want to reiterate on that continuum of decency. I think that it is just most offensive, truly, to men, because there is this assumption that they cannot control themselves in a situation like this. And if a six-year-old was to sit on their lap and then put her hand on his penis, well, what do you expect him to do? And I think that that is just such an outrage and so offensive. And the whole victim-blaming culture that we live in, it, men should be outraged. With the whole Me Too movement, it really should be men speaking up and talking about what it's like to be respectful and kind and compassionate and not accepting that it is 
okay in any way ever to behave otherwise. Because that is just really the core with victim blaming is that there's this assumption that if the victim somehow deserved it, then men are allowed to act this way. I am blessed to have so many good, respectful men in my life. And I know that in any victim blaming scenario, if they were faced with this situation, either with a drunk, naked, passed out girl or with a six-year-old doing inappropriate things, that they would do the right thing. And I think the majority of men in our world and our country would. And it is just really offensive when we we talk about victim blaming because it almost just assumes that, well, what can you do? Men are going to just misbehave. And it's really, it's not fair. So um, that is pretty much all I have to say today about tip number seven, knowing the signs of sexual abuse. Again, none of these are really anything definitive. I think back to a case I had um, in this little girl. She was probably about 13 years old when she had a neighbor sexually assault her. And that same summer that the assault happened, her parents got a divorce. And so that fall, she had all kinds of issues. They caught her smoking pot. She was cutting on herself and all kinds of behavioral things were coming up. And they just assumed that, and most like most parents would, that it was all due to the divorce, when in fact she had actually been assaulted. So they had moved as a result of the divorce. She knew that she wouldn't see this kid ever again. And so she just made this assumption that, oh gosh, well, if I'm not going to see him again, I better just, I don't want to say anything about it because I don't want to put myself through that. And she ended up staying quiet about it for a couple of years, which really resulted in, um, just a lot of mental health issues for her. So um, anyway, we will be getting into that in tip number eight is really knowing how to respond. And this is about the importance of telling and really the importance of, of just helping encourage kids to tell. Um, and but more than anything, adults knowing how to respond if a child does tell you this. So that's what we'll be getting into in tip number eight. So thank you so much for listening to yet another episode of the top 10 things you can do to prevent child sexual abuse. This has been tip number seven. Again, I want to remind you if anything I've said today has triggered you, please reach out and get your own help. The Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network is a great resource at 1-800-656-HOPE. And also if you have anything to report as far as child abuse or neglect, contact your local law enforcement or a child protective services agency. Thank you very much and you have a great day.